Welcome to broadcast number 33 of Indie Radio, the first broadcast of season three. Indie Radio is an indie game development talk show, which is here to bring you interviews with both large and lesser known developers, recap the latest news, debate about topics in indie gaming, and to give you some tips and tricks for your journey into game development. Today, I will be your host, Brett Hudson, broadcasting live from the Midwest United States. I'm Ian OS, and I'll be running co-host.exe for the duration of this show. Uh, my name is Steve Swink. I guess I'm the guest here. I'm uh, an independent developer. I've been doing this for 10 years or so. Before that, I worked on Tony Hawk Underground as a game designer, and uh, then Flashbang Studios. Wonderful time with those gentlemen. www.blurst.com if you want to see all the stuff we did there. And I'm currently working on a game called Scale, which is a first-person puzzle platformer kind of thing where you can scale objects up and down as much as you want in the world. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so we're just going to go straight into our news, and we have a bit today. Um, to start off with, we have Stencil. They uh, adopted the Hacks programming language, so now they support um, Hacks, obviously. And it's basically an action script slash JavaScript-like language that exports multiple platforms thanks to its ability to be translated into different languages, including Flash, JavaScript, C++, Java, and C Sharp. I'm interested. Do you are you aware of anyone doing like really serious work with Stencil? Uh, not really. So it's primarily still used as like a teaching tool. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, there have okay. been a few games that have come out that uh, got a bit bigger. I think I think it was Stencil that was working with Newgrounds in a game jam, and there are some games that came out of that, but don't quote me on that. <clears throat> um, but yeah. I would like, I'd like to see those. That'd be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as the uh, hacks updates, Stencil 3.0 is going to be coming out fairly soon. They said that they started a closed beta for paying customers back in August. And their vision for Stencil 3.0 is to design your game once, play it anywhere. And that they said that they're happy to say that Stencil 3.0 is well on its way towards achieving that goal. Ian, you want to take what's coming in Stencil 3.0? You might get a 400% increase in speed. But in general, games all are running faster and everything. It's a lot more frustration-free with development, so shouldn't have... Well, that's fairly straightforward. Anyways, um, so over the course of the next month, they'll be covering Stencil 3.0's features and improvements in individual posts. Mm-hmm. And then there's some other things going on um, with a mobile workflow um, and mobile stuff. They're adding a bunch of new stuff for ad support, social gaming. Um, their engines obviously improved. And they're hoping to release it by the end of the year, somewhere in November slash early December. And uh, this was posted almost a month ago at the beginning of October, so obviously it's coming out in November, December now. Right, and then Skira has, along with um, Game Salad and Windows, or Windows, sorry, 
uh, Game Maker Studio, they're all introducing Windows 8 support for the Metro, because Windows 8, uh, the Alpha just came out, and is is the full version of Windows 8 out? Because <laughs> I saw a release date for the 26th, but I wasn't sure if that was the Alpha or the full version. Oh, no, that would have been the full version, I think. Because it says, discover Windows 8 today! Yep, then it's out. So right now, you can already make games for Windows 8 and publish it to the Metro uh, using Construct 2, Game Salad, and Game Maker Studio. And the New Year Games also has some stuff going on with that. They have a generation app challenge. So basically, you make a Windows 8 game with Game Maker Studio by December 8th, and you can enter it in to their competition. So um, the Game Maker Studio export for Windows 8 is free for Game Maker Studio standard, professional, and master coll- collection customers. That's a mouthful. And then you just have to register as a Windows developer to publish your game, either a student registration, which is free, or a professional registration. Uh, and then you basically submit it to both the store and their competition page, which can be found at eougames.com. Slash competition slash Windows dash 8. You guys use Game Maker stuff? Not anymore. Mm, okay. Yeah, we... I, I, I heard this weird uh, sort of rumblings in the community. It almost seems like, you know, Game Maker sort of fired the blue shell at Unity, like they're making a comeback. It's kind of <laughs> like they they released this big update and they, you know, have all these features that people have requested for a long time and it really seems like people are kind of coming back around to thinking Game Maker is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can, de- you can develop for Android, iOS... Uh, HTML5, obviously now Windows 8, and uh, I want to say that there's something else that you can develop for using GameMaker now, so that's that's probably what the big thing is. And then they have like five different versions of GameMaker right now that you can buy, each one obviously more expensive than the last. <laughs> <laughs> and then the exports for iOS and Android cost $100 a piece, so... For those people that are paying. to export to iOS, you still have to have a Mac. Yep. You have to have a Mac, and you gotta have an Apple license, and... It's just money out the window. But, um, you can also get the money right back in the window if you make a really good game that sells well on the market, obviously. Cash will be right back in your pocket. How often does the wind blow the money back in through the window, honestly? Not very Not often. Up. Kind of a roll of the dice. Pretty much. Well, it's it's a loaded roll of the dice, and you should definitely pay off the dealer. That's a way to do it. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, Ian, you can take your your games next article. We just did both of your games articles, basically. Well, there was three of them. The Steam article. Yes. Well, okay, if there's green light on the seam, as some of you, well, most of you should probably know by now. Um, but anyways, Game Maker Studio can export directly to green light on Steam, and therefore it's kind of essentially just, uh, uh, well, I can't think of what's called now, a gaming portal through Steam, though, for indie games. Mm-hmm. So all the whole thing of not being able to uh, get games on Steam and everything, that's so difficult, and especially Steam just had you know, the reputation of not liking Game Maker games. Now... You can, anyone pretty much can just get their Game Maker game on Steam, just not 
obviously in the same sense that you would for a commercial game. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, so you press a button in Game Maker and it makes a green page for you? Because, I mean, it's not like making a green light page is difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not so much the green light. I think it's actually a different section in the uh, Steam because they actually have a Steam version of Game Maker. You can get Game Maker right on Steam now, buy it right through Steam, and they have their own what's called the uh, Workplace, I think it's called. Or the Workshop, workshop. that's what it's called. Yeah. Uh, yep. you move on to green light. And you're able to save everything to the Steam cloud uh, with Game Maker and everything. And then, obviously, you can... Yep, just you push it to the workshop and then onto green light, it says. So, Interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a big step up for Yo-Yo games. Um, hopefully, Game Maker will do better with this and not worse. They've done that's a little great. bit... It sort of sniffs at an interesting possibility in the future. I mean, they've they've been kind of tiptoeing around this for a while, but it's it's looking like we're going to start getting you know all the Adobe Suite stuff and 3D Studio Max and things like that all for sale through Steam, or at least they're thinking very hard about doing it. It's kind of like when Indie Game the movie was released on Steam. You're thinking, okay, so is Steam going to start selling movies? more generally, also, like, they're sort of dipping their toes in that water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's not really, it's not really it's just dumping content up there. They want, if you're going to put, you know, Game Maker into Steam, then they want some sort of integration, like this whole workshop idea with this kind of Yeah. <clears throat> I don't really uh, have much should, to add on to that. Sorry. I know everyone talks about Greenlight all the time, and, and it's been talked to death, basically, but it's, it's still a scary thing that is still not in a form that I feel really good about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll definitely bring that up during the interview. Yeah, sure. All right. Uh, the IF, or IFG, well, IGF, IGF. submissions <laughs> um, just hit a new record of 600 games submitted. 600. That's crazy. Last year um, had the record of 567 games at the show and then obviously this year has 600 for the IGF 2013 and then you can read more about it at indiegames.com wow that was terrible voice mess up there and it also says, with the event growing ever larger, IGF 2013 has expanded to each of the main Competition award categories to six finalists, except Nuovo, which has eight finalists. The main competition finalists will be announced in January 2013, and all will be playable or available in playable form at a larger expanded IGF pavilion on the GDC show floor. Yep. Do you know? Do you know any games that are uh, that were submitted to the IGF that are notable? Uh, yeah, lots of really good things. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there 600, right? So we could spend all day going through all the good entries. And the, Just go through I, the 300 that are really good. And, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and Matthew included the JSON feed this year. So I hope that... And he, he actually wrote like a, a little browser app that makes it quite a bit easier to get through the pages than just one at a time. But um, I don't have the link handy. 
And I hope that somebody grabs that and makes like a really nice fully featured browser, somebody that has, has the time to do that. Because that's something that's really lacking, I think, in IGF entries. I think you see a lot of hits on the pages that are uh, games named numbers and A, and a <laughs> lot of hits on the games named X and Z. Um, and then otherwise, it's kind of it's not a, a very efficient way to look at a bunch of games. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I just clicked on the link to the JSON feed, but it basically just showed up as JSON code, yeah. code <laughs> everywhere. So I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> on, uh. Yeah, I used to to help run the IGF behind the scenes a little bit. Oh, really? Um, nothing close to what Matthew did, <clears throat> what Matthew does, and continue, uh, continues to do. Um, but you know, I, I helped run the student IGF, and I curated that, and um, you know, just generally did what I could. And and me and Matthew actually introduced the IGF three years in a row. In a row, a couple oh, years wow. ago. I don't know. Yep. So I was involved behind the scenes, and I have sort of a unique perspective from doing that. That's pretty cool. That perspective is everybody gets really bent out of shape about it, and it and it really is not worth getting bent out of shape about because there's really no way to predict what is going to rise to the top at a certain level. There's probably there's probably always going to be thirty or forty games that are really polished, really good have a great idea, are wonderfully well executed, are the type of game that tend to rise on top in the IGF, and amongst those, it's a roll of the dice. No idea. <laughs> like, you know, the people who are staring at the numbers behind the scenes, we have no idea, you know, when we, when we look at the entries, what's going to end up floating to the top. How does somebody get involved with helping out with the IGF? Uh, we were asked to do it in 2005 or 2006, I think. We had been entries, and we had been nominees a couple of years, and um, we were helping out with the Independent Games Summit, which I still do, so we, I, I'm still one of the board members or whatever on the uh, Independent Games Summit, so I vet content, help improve content, you know, choose what talks are going to be given at the Independent Games Summit at GC. Um, and so just at that time, Simon asked us to help out, and we did, and it was fun. We did it for a few years. And then I, I sort of backed out a couple of years ago because at some point I would like to enter IGF again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I can tell you that, that having looked at things from the back, there's really no way to gain an advantage of any kind because it truly is a sort of legitimate, you know, like jury voting structure. There's yeah. no way to gain the system. There's no way to like know the judges and make friends with them and all the ridiculous <laughs> things people say when their games aren't in the finalists. I gotcha. Yeah. It's, it, it, it is the result of a system. The, the choices of the games are the result of a system in which no one person can sway the system one way or another. It's, it's sort of what happens when you actually let people vote and you don't you know, mess with it at all. Hmm. And there's always, it's, a, it's I don't know, it's, it's sort of a hilarious thing, right? It's like everyone has this list of games in their mind that they want to be a finalist. And inevitably, one of those games doesn't make finals. And then they're like, IGF is broken because this one game didn't make finalists. Like, well, if you had a festival and you curated it and the only uh, <laughs> the only thing that you did was just choose the games that you wanted, then you can complain about it. But, I mean, if you're actually going to have a, a process where people in juries vote for games, then you're going to end up with something like what we have. I gotcha. <laughs> um, 
Alright, so for the next set of articles, we have some bundles. 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 Bundle bundle is over. But it's the humble ebook bundle, which is probably why we're still bringing it up. Mm hmm. Um, so basically, it, well, it's the humble ebook bundle. So you have a bunch of ebooks as opposed to games or music as they've done in the past. Um, well, I would get it just for XKCD, but you know, that's just me. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm not totally sure how I feel about the fact that they're now going off to try and do ebooks as well, given that the whole bundle thing has just really progressed from being games to all these different medias and mediums. Um, and I, I don't know what they're going to do next now, but it's kind of gone out of proportion, I think. Yeah, definitely. Because. Um, well, didn't they have another one? They had the games, the music, the ebooks. Wasn't there another one? Or am I just... I, I can't remember another one, but there might have been. Yeah. Um... I think that's it. I think it's, yeah. Mm -hmm. They did, like, you know, Android games. And stuff. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That's what it was. That I think that's Lobos. what I'm thinking of. Um, but the books that were in it were Cory Doctorow... Oh, oops, no, that's that's the author, sorry. Uh, Pirate Cinema, Pump 6, Zoo City, Invasion, Stranger Things Happen, Magic for Beginners, and then if you pay over the average of, what was it at the end? Average purchase was $15 almost. Um, you get Signal to Noise, Old Man's War, uh, X, XKCD, Volume 0, uh, Save Yourself Mama, The Most Dangerous Game, Attack of the... Bacon Robots, and Epic Legends of the Magic Sword Knights. Oh, Kings. Sorry. Knights, Kings. Same same thing, right? I do like how the uh, 8th, 9th, and 10th contributors, contributors uh, top contributors, that is, of course, uh, are all Will W. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even notice that. <laughs> oh, but the first one is... Um, at twenty sided die at uh, CNP work, and then his clown sweater, and then just Will W. But... <laughs> wow! And uh, with the stats, it pretty much follows all the other ones. There was one point two million dollars spent in total, with the Windows being the cheapest, and the As usual Linux and, and Linux. Yep, it always follows that pattern every single time. Every single time. And Linux is always the one that buys the least, obviously, because least used OS, I think. Maybe. Yes, but they're, I mean, probably. they're paying the most, so... <sighs> <sighs> I don't think they're so grateful to get content, I think. Yeah, no, that's probably it. Yeah. It's kind of funny, though, at the same time, because it's the free operating system of all of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's strange how these things work sometimes. Right, and then the Indie Gala. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say it just means that it's an underserved market, right? It's yeah. People are consistently spending over a million dollars over a two-week period to buy these things. Then clearly, you know, while we may be looking at that and thinking, "Geez, another bundle," there are a huge number of customers out there like, "Yep, bundle sounds good. Oh, great. <laughs> yes, I want this. I want all this stuff, and I'm gonna pay fifteen dollars for it." Eighty-four thousand of them. Yeah, that's a that's a non-trivial number, and if you add up all the money that that Humble Bundle Inc has made over the course of this year, you get a pretty ridiculous number, actually. Yeah. I used to contribute to every single one at least 
about five dollars because that's what the average usually would be. But um, eventually my bank account got to uh, zero, being I'm 16 and don't have a job job. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I can't buy any more bundles. Shoot. A bit depressed, but... Um, and then for the other two bundles, I will take the first one. The Indie Gala 10 bundle has nine games. Uh, Omega Loon... Paratorians, Majesty 2, East Indian India Company, and then if you pay over the average, you get it says Rome Gold, Knights of Honor, Leaden Gold, Elven Legacy, and Hearts of Iron 2 complete. Quick, and do you recognize any of those games? No, I don't! Dang. But still, they've gotten nearly 1,200, or 1,200, sorry, 12,000 people to uh, buy the bundles, and it ends in 642,961 seconds. Why they don't have it in days and hours, I don't know. That's probably just so people come back every single day, and they're like, is it over yet? <laughs> really crappy marketing strategy there. meant to be sort of a bundle for the rest of us kind of thing. It's sort of bundles for games that don't really fit in the Humble Bundle or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that was a great transition. Take it, Ian! Oh, look! The Indie Royale! The Halloween Bundle! <laughs> the current minimum is $5.27, and the suggested price is over $15. If you pay $8 or more, you get an album, and there have currently been almost 11,000 bundles purchased. This one just says five days remaining. It's actually almost six days, but... Um, yeah. Then there is Sam and Max, The Devil's Playhouse, Full Season, Home, Pathologic, MacGuffin's, or MacGuffin's Curse, and Evil Quest. Evil uh, all Quest. All these are on... Well, all these are in the Sura and Windows. Um, a few of them are on Steam, and... And Mac. Actually, yeah, one or two of them are on Mac. They just don't love the Linux. No love. This is why Linux pays the most for the Humble Bundle. Well, the uh, Humble Bundle makes it worth it to people to do a Linux port of their game. It's not that people dislike Linux or anything sort of like that. It's just like it would cost them X amount to put their game on Linux and mm -hmm. do a proper port of it. And it's not worth the money unless you're in the Humble Bundle, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that makes a lot of sense. It. Right, and then for their upcoming bundles, they have the Harvest Bundle <clears throat> in four weeks, the Stuffing Bundle in five weeks, and the Winter Bundle in seven weeks. So you can expect more places to spend your money in the coming two months. Alright, so Indie Game the Movie DVD and Blu-ray is now available. It's also on Netflix. Yes, it is also on Netflix. I, I watched it again just because it came up on my recommended... Recommended movies. Alright, so the DVD and Blu-ray contains Indie Game the Movie Theoretical... Th th theatrical. Ah, oh, Brett, come on. You can say this. It's an easy word. The Theatrical Cut. Beautiful 1080p high definition on the Blu-ray. Standard definition transfer on DVD. Surround sound, blah, 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 blah. Um, audio commentary from the directors as well as Team Meat. Alternate clean... Swear-free audio track. 
available for those who have children in their house, like wait, me. Wait, 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 wait. That, that would be silence. That's all that would be. Yeah, I mean, you get Edmund and Tommy. <laughs> I, I honestly didn't realize how much they swore until I watched it with my parents. And I was like, <laughs> oh. Yeah, pay attention to every oh. time. <laughs> and, like, my, my siblings were like, what did they just say? And I'm like, you guys gotta uh. get out. <laughs> Alright, they have DVD subtitles in English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Brazil, and German. And then the Blu-ray also adds on Italian, Dutch, Chinese, traditional, and then Russian subtitles. Alright, and then there's a note at the bottom. If you've pre-ordered a regular edition DVD or Blu-ray, this is only the regular edition, not the special edition. Please take that in mind. Um, You should have received a uh, confirmation email for your order last month. They're still working on the special edition right now, and I believe they said that they're hoping to have that done by the middle of November, but they said it might take longer just because of money and time constraints, and they have a lot of stuff to work with. It's going to have over 40 extra hours of content, I believe, which is insane. So they actually interviewed me and um, my roommate, Kyle, and uh, Aaron Robinson, uh, who was also my roommate, but also my girlfriend, too. Um, and an, an independent game developer also. She and Kyle and I and like a whole bunch of other people were interviewed and they have hours and hours of footage and I think they're going to dump all that stuff into the extra features. <laughs> That's crazy. It's, an, it's not as interesting as talking to like Tommy and Edmund because we, we, at the time, were not in the midst of a horrible dark pit of development. We were all just like, yeah, it is. You're totally rad and awesome. I guess doesn't make it Indie work. games! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It says that overall they accumulated over 300 hours of footage. Yeah. 300. I couldn't so, imagine going through that much content. Like, I... Editing the radio show is... Like, 16 terabytes or something. Oh, jeez. That's 12 days. 12 and a half days of footage. <laughs> They watched it all a bunch of times. Yeah. Yeah, like with the radio show, when uh, we used to do this pre recording, we'd like get two hours worth of content, and I'd easily spend six hours editing it, and that's just audio. That doesn't have anything to do with video editing. Well, there's your problem right there. You just don't edit it. (laughs) (laughs) So then you get all the little mess ups like, hey, Ian, shut up. I'm trying to talk. Yep. Um, what I'm really looking forward to seeing in the special edition was Alec Holoka and Derek, you were actually supposed to be in the original version of Indie Game the movie, but their story takes a different pace uh, than the other uh, stories in the movie, so they actually cut them out and gave them their own um, part in the special edition, and that's probably what I'm looking forward to the most in the special edition, which is currently $70 for the Blu-ray and I believe $60, yep, $60 for the DVD, and that's Canadian money, so about the same for the U.S. Money the same as U.S. money right now? Uh, it's just about, yeah, like dollar or two difference. <laughs> 1.0012 U.S. dollars is one Canadian dollar. I, I love Google, okay. <laughs> Google has some crazy stuff. Like, the other day, um, I found out that... They have, like, a 3D HTML5 um, graph on there. You can plug in crazy equations, and it'll graph it in 3D. 
like calculus stuff. Yeah, and yeah. you can also move around everything freely. Mm-hmm. I found a couple of days ago that they have a public data directory where you can go through various statistics and that it will plot them for you and all sorts of different types of charts. So there's like a line plot, uh, sky charts, and other stuff like that. And you can also uh, kind of mess with stuff like the uh, year or the uh, span and between years, like dates or whatever, stuff like that. And they just have a bunch of stuff in there. So you can search through public data. And yeah, I don't know. I thought that was really cool. That is pretty sweet. All right, and we're finally to our next, or our next, our last news topic. Uh, it only took us an, half an hour to get through it. Um, Mugenics, the next Team Meat game. Sorry, I just had to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, Super Meat Boy guys, Edmund and Tommy are working on this. We also have an interview with Tommy lined up soon. We contacted him via Formspring. And he said that he's going to join us on the show uh, pretty soon, so look forward to that yeah. as well. That's that's good people. That's one of my favorite peoples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we interviewed Edmund on March 31st uh, this year. And that, that was a lot of fun. I love that it's such a big part of your life, you remember the exact date. <laughs> well, it's, it's part of our password, Ian, so... You probably shouldn't say that on air. It's all right. They won't be able to get the rest. Plus, we're changing it in a week. If you can remember it. Yeah, and by a week, I mean Monday, so... Have fun trying to figure out our password, everyone. All right. But, um, Edmund said that it's one of the strangest projects he's ever worked on, which is kind of scary to think about, because if you've watched Indie Game the movie, you've seen some of his, um... His interesting games. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Mhm. And then, um, I had to do a little extra research. It's because I'm following Edmund on Tumblr. Uh, every Friday, they said that they're going to tease one aspect of the new Mugenics game. And uh, yesterday, they released a picture of Mr. Tinkles, one of the characters in the game. Uh, he's got a Italian mustache. A shirt that's got a heart on it, um, a crown, it says party girl at the top, and, uh, yeah, I'm guessing he's, he's a little limp-wristed, maybe, but you never know what to expect with Team Meat, they have some pretty out-there stuff, right? And, uh, you can just check that out at edmundm.com, and, uh, that's his... Tumblr. Oh, also they released a, this is a cry for help. I don't really want to announce this because I want to buy one of these. There's 500 copies being released. It's an anthology of Edmund McMillan's comics that he made between the ages of 16 and 20. Uh, the printing is limited to 500 copies and he's signing each and every one. And it's $30 right now and it's a bit over 200 pages and it says that it's for mature readers only so I'm definitely buying it. And there, there was a, a humorous snafu with the printing. Poor Edmund submitted his comics and got it all locked in with a particular printer, um, with a publisher, and the publisher sent it to be printed, and the printer refused to print it. <laughs> like, like, they saw the content of the comic and refused to print it at that point. Wow. Not, not, not the publisher vetting the content, but the printer, whose only job was to take the Photoshop file or whatever, put it into their printing machine and run it. And they decided that they would refuse to 
What? <laughs> comics. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. And I, I, I kind of like that's. I mean, dude, that's kind of like a high five. Like that's awesome. <laughs> like that's a, a that you can wear. Oh my god. They that's insane. Refused to print my comic because it was too offensive. <laughs> kind of like being banned in Germany. It's sort of like a badge of honor for you. <laughs> Wow, and then he could make a little joke about the uh, title, This is a Cry for Help. He needs help printing his freaking comics. Well, you know where that comes from, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I recognized it right away. I'm like, oh, hey. little quote there going on. Yep. All right, we're finally done with our news, so we're going to jump into our interview right after this. Alright, so with us today we have Steve Swink, and he's been working on a game called Scale, which is, um, when I first heard him, uh, uh, how do I say this, which is what made me first hear of Steve, although he's obviously been a part of many other things, so you want to give us a little rundown of what you've done? Uh, sure. Uh, so, yeah, I was a game designer on Tony Hawk Underground like a million years ago. So I, I did a fair amount of the first level, and which is also the last level if you played the game, and did a whole bunch of um, like goal script and dialogue writing and building the level out and all that sort of thing, and jumped around and did that. And then I got done with that, and it was it was um, like before that I had worked at another game studio that that uh, totally failed and folded, and that's another sad story, um, although not atypical in the game industry. And so this was, you know, I'd worked for like a year and a half on this other game, and it just failed and never came out, and so I was like, okay, cool, this is going to be my actual game, I'm going to finally release a game, it's my childhood dream, whatever, and so uh, the last month of production of Tony Hawk Underground was just a nightmare, and uh, I, I think crunch is just the stupidest thing in the world, and we should all stop propagating the crunch culture, which is actually sort of an interesting critique I might level against the, the indie game the movie, we can talk more about that later, but anyway, so we got to the end of it, and it had been, I don't know, like 30 days or something of, of sleeping seven hours, and just working all other times, pretty much, and it was really brutal, like, I was really fat from eating all this crappy food that they brought in for us, so that we could sit at our desks and keep working, and then... <laughs> And I was all haggard, and my shirts were all, like, had holes in them because I hadn't bought any new clothes for a long time, and I was just, just like, in rough shape. But I went down to the Best Buy, and I was like, oh, my God, okay, this is going to be awesome. I'm totally going to go to the Best Buy. <laughs> I'm going to sit here and watch when somebody buys the game. It's going to be, like, the first commercial release of a game that I worked on, and I'm so excited about it. So I went down to the Best Buy, and I sat there and waited next to the rack of uh, Tony Hawk Underground, waited for a while. Um, for someone to come and buy it. And there was, like, these two skater kids that came in, and I'll never forget this. And they had, like, a like a chocolate ice cream cone, and they were, like, fucking over it, so they were just, like, covered in chocolate, and they were all like, <laughs> gross and, like, bratty and weird, and they were just like, no, oh, you know, what game should we buy? Yeah, let's buy Tony Hawk. Like, no, that game sucks. And I was just like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, no, what am I doing with my life? Um, so I, it, 
a couple of weeks later, I left Neversoft and uh, moved to Arizona to work with my bros at Flashbang Studios. So I did that for 10 years. Um, no, well, like, probably like six or eight years. And we made some casual games, and we decided that we hate making casual games, so we stopped making casual games. Because uh, at the time, that seemed to be the only reasonable path, and this was like 2004, like early 2004, 2005. Uh, that seemed to be the path for people who were teams of three or four to actually be able to sustain themselves. You know, it's like, let's make a casual game and release it. And then after the, that casual game makes us millions of dollars, we naively thought, oh, well, then we'll be able to make the games that we want. Uh, turns out that that's a terrible idea <laughs> for a number of different reasons, uh, but not the least of which is because if you do something and successful, you will need to keep doing that if you, you know, want to continue being successful, right? And mm-hmm. so we just didn't think it through. Young and dumb, and we didn't, you know, realize that you should just make the game that you want to make, and that everything. Anyway, so then we gave up on the casual stuff, and we started making games that we thought were cool and fun, and that's where the big hit of Flashbang, which was off-road Velociraptor Safari, came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was awesome, and if we had known a little bit more about business at that time when we were getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of hits every day or whatever it was to raptorsafari.com, we would have put up a pre-order link for Raptor Safari Pro or Raptor Safari 64 or whatever we ended up calling it um, and just made like a larger version of the game, sort of like an open world sandbox you know, thing with multiple levels or however we ended up doing it. Uh, but we didn't really know about that, so instead we just kept making games and giving away for free. And somewhere in there, we did that Cisco contract work, which funded us for three years or something. <laughs> um, and at our height, I think we were seven people, six or seven people. And so we sort of conducted this grand experiment where we made a game every eight weeks hmm. for an entire year. So on you can see the results of what happens when you take a bunch of people and make a game every eight weeks for a year and change and put all those games up on a single website for free. Uh, you never make money. That's one thing that never happens. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can't give things away for free and then expect people to pay for them. And also, uh, eight weeks is kind of like the, the, the not sweet spot as far as making games, I think. Like, if, if we had taken more time to make one game, we could have sold that to people. Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, it's like, if you want to make a site where lots of people come because there's so much new content and they're there because there's new content all the time, then you're talking about being new grounds and then you're more of an aggregator, right? So it's kind of like we made these games really quickly, but we didn't have enough games for people to constantly keep coming back to blurs.com, but we also didn't make games that people would want to pay money for because they weren't larger scale games. So anyway, lesson learned. It was sort of like this amazing game development camp. We learned a ton. We had a wonderful time. We cracked ourselves up. We made a bunch of really stupid games that were really fun. <laughs> um, and then we sort of shuttered Flashbang in 2000, late 2009, early 2010. And then I started working on a game called Shadow Physics. Um, and I formed a new company called Enemy Airship to do that. Uh, we were indie funded and we worked on it for a really long time. And it just wasn't coming together the way that we wanted and we it would be another three years or something before the game actually came out so we decided you know we're gonna put the brakes on this and i i never felt like we were at a point where the game would come 
comfortable with like the trajectory was to make a game that was uh, a shadow of what I wanted to make. And so I sort of was like, well, you know, I don't want to release something and put my name on it unless I'm, I feel really proud of it or at least you know, okay with releasing it. So then we sort of shuttered that whole thing and I was in debt and I was having really, really bad like physical problems. Like I had terrible, um, like stomach problems, like ulcers and stuff from the stress. That's not of, good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was in, I was in bad, a bad way. Uh, so I had to do something that, that would reduce that stress and also fix the problems of having gone to debt. So I took a job at the Arizona State University as a lead designer on a bunch of different educational games. Uh, and if you want to check that stuff out, it's atlantisremix.org. And there's a lot of really neat stuff on there. Although the games, I think, do not make a huge amount of sense without the context. So the context is we're looking to do curriculum replacement with these games. So very often what you see when you see games in the classroom is you see uh, a very dedicated teacher takes Minecraft and makes a lesson out of Minecraft. And it's a supplemental lesson, and it's done not as for the main curriculum as something fun for the kids and maybe after school or whatever. So we were trying to make something with Atlantis Remix that is curriculum replacement. So you take a lesson from the actual curriculum uh, that follows the curriculum guidelines set down by the Gates Foundation that, that many states have adopted. And you say, okay, we're going to take this curriculum and we're going to make the parts of it that better as a game into a game. Hmm. And you can go on all rant about how uh, public education is failing us because it doesn't <laughs> systems thinking and it, it doesn't teach creativity and actually systematically educates people out of their creativity and how this was an attempt to, to alter that and change that. Um, if you guys want to talk about that, that's that's sort of a whole other topic. But that's anyway, that's what I, what we did. And so we made this game that was kind of like you have an avatar and, and it's we tried to make a 3D world and we had a team of like five people so we had very few resources but we tried to make a 3D world that at least is sort of comparable to games the kids would play at home you could run around you could customize your avatar um, so the, the first game we made is a persuasive writing game uh, called The Doctor's Cure so you sort of come into this 18 early 1800s town and everyone's dying of the plague and you have to figure out what's going on and then write a persuasive article, a persuasive commentary in the newspaper that then sways all the townspeople for or against this doctor. And it's sort of like a like a riff on bioethics, like is it okay to experiment on human-like subjects? And it's kind of a riff on uh, Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> you have Frankenstein's monster and he doesn't talk, but he does things that are sort of human-like and there are characters that like him. And the doctor in the town is experimenting on him to find the cure to the plague. And there's no right answer. Like at the end of the game, uh, you know, the monster is either, you know, sort of dead or the people are saved. And there's no right answer to it. And, the, you know, basically the idea there is to put the kids in a world that, that and give them characters that they can actually engage with and care about. And then ask them to write something in that context, like really build a context for them to write in as opposed to just, saying, okay, we're going to stand, and I'm going to teach her, I'm going to stand in front of the class, I'm going to tell you about writing, and here's the three-paragraph essay format, which is you know, not even necessarily that good a thing. Uh, education is another topic. Anyway, um, 
But anyway, what we give them is a situation where they go into this town and they can walk around and they talk to the people and they gather evidence and quotes and they assemble it and they write the article all in the game and then the teacher actually plays a character in the game. So it's kind of like the teacher is DMing the experience of the student as they move through. The teacher has this whole back end where they can watch the progress of the students so they can see if need help or they can like dip in to a particular student's game and like comment at, and all sorts of things like that. And so That's so cool. Other vision about how education could be done, uh, informed by you know basically good game design practices, and I don't know, it, it turned out really cool. I'm really like I we're we're implementing it as I said in this school in Tucson with a thousand kids uh, this week actually, and so I'm really interested to see you know what kind of different learning you get when you approach things from that sort of hey, kids, here's a, a complex system, and we're not going to pull any punches, and we're going to treat you like you're intelligent, and go in and find the solutions yourself, and figure things out for yourself, and think for yourself, not just, hey, what's the right answer, what's the right answer, what's the right answer, skill and drill, skill and drill, take a test, blah, blah, blah. I really like that. Um, so anyway, that's, that's what I've been doing lately, and now I'm just using out my involvement in that to work on scale, probably full-time, although I'm probably just going to do a bunch of smaller game projects first to kind of um, get something out there because I haven't released anything for a long time. I'm getting really antsy about that. So with this whole um, school game development stuff, um, it, that's run by the Arizona State University, you said? Yeah, so there's, I mean, <clears throat> Arizona State University has 70,000 undergrads. It's a monstrous monolithic complex of buildings that takes over pretty much all of central Tempe. Uh, so the small part of that huge enterprise that I was a part of was the center for games and impact, um, on the main campus. So it's a newly formed thing and they have a, a special degree in like impact games. So you, you, as part of your undergrad, you can take some classes about making games and, how to make games that have an impact on the world as opposed to just being a good game sort of thing. Huh. And do you see that, like, kind of... Do you Can you see that becoming part of the public education system? Well, <clears throat> there are huge players behind it. I mean, the game that we just are working on is funded by the Gates Foundation, and the Gates Foundation is the body which has created the curriculum that all the schools are sort of signed on to right now. They're, they're in the process of creating this core curriculum standard, uh, and almost every state has bought into it, which hasn't happened in, you know, 100 years or something, where all the schools in the United States have bought into one curriculum standard. Um, so there's a very good chance, because there are such high-level stakeholders at play, that if the study that they're running on the game right now, they're doing what's called a comparison study. So basically mm -hmm. they're going to have a bunch of teachers teach in the classroom what they would normally teach for this persuasive writing lesson to one of their classes. And then to their other class, they're going to use our game to teach. And they're going to write up this big study on, on the learning gains before and after with a different, you know, control group and our game. And so like, and if that goes well, I, I think there's a very large chance that you'll see <clears throat> our content rolled out to a lot of schools in Arizona and then potentially nationwide. So yes, it is possible that this could you know, reverberate out through all of public education. 
That'd which be... I would love to see. And that was one of the main motivating factors for me to sign up to do this job because I think that public education is really letting people down right now. I don't know. Did you guys have, were you educated in public schools? Like, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm. Yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah, I, right. I've so, been having like, similar thoughts in terms of the whole. I don't like how basically it's all memorization and things like that in school, and that just kind of disappoints me because that's that's really it's not intelligence. It's just can you repeat what we've told you? And yeah, pretty much. When it also is, uh, you know, you are in a system where the primary motivating factor is to make the teacher happy because the teacher is the ultimate arbiter of giving you a grade. And when you get out into the world, the way the world is now, that is not a good model for you as a human being. A much better model for you as a human being is to look at the complex systems that comprise the world, you know, all the different crazy information that you have access to as a human being in the world today, and understand those systems and feel confident that you can affect those systems in a positive way, and that be how you sort of approach the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of going off of that, uh, this year my high school adopted... Um, a rule that we can use our, like, smartphones and tablets and laptops and everything. Well, we could already use our laptops. But um, we can use them in the classroom um, for learning purposes. So, like, uh, a lot of the times, if the teacher doesn't know a lot about something that, you know, the book brings up, they'll be like, hey, somebody look up, you know, the information, and then we'll all just look it up on our smartphones, and we'll basically compile our information, and it's like a giant information gathering session, which is really cool. That actually does sound, that sounds really interesting. That, that's been happening over here, too. Very different states, but... Mm -hmm. yeah. That's definitely better than just road instruction. But, I mean, Yeah. I think that even sitting still in a classroom and having a teacher tell you what's going on is is kind of like a broken model and like the whole notion of a grade as opposed to like something project-based I think would be a little more interesting. Like I think you probably gain a lot more benefit from sitting down and saying, oh, uh, let's like make a game from scratch and you have to release it and all the different pieces and systems that that would touch. Like because mm -hmm. you need to actually build the game, you'd actually have to understand the programming that required to build the game, and then there would be <clears throat> potentially integration with Steam or something like that, and then you would need to go actually talk to people if you wanted to release on various platforms, and you'd have to like, make a website, and you'd have to think about conversion rates, and all these sorts of things that are non-obvious, but are all parts of the large system of actually releasing a game. I don't know, I think you would gain a huge amount of benefit from that type of exercise, as opposed to sitting in a classroom and having a teacher tell you, you know, like, here's uh, some code. Now copy it into your text editor and now compile it, which seems to be the way that programming is taught in public schools for some reason. Yeah, and that just... Yeah, my school just adopted a program called Game It, I think it's called, and it's, it's a curriculum for making games, and they... For some strange reason, my counselor signed me up for it, even though I've been developing games for about four and a half years now. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to take this. I could probably teach the class. Um, and I'm hoping that it doesn't turn out like that. A lot of people wanted me to join it just so that I could help them out, but I, I couldn't sit through that, especially with the teacher that it is. I, I can't stand her as is. I couldn't stand her teaching me stuff that 
is common sense to me now. Especially since she doesn't even make games. She won't even know what she's talking about. Uh, yeah. Um, do you know what they're using as a tool? Is it Game Maker? Or, or is it not? I don't know. That's what I was asking. Oh, oh, you're yeah. asking. I thought I thought you were saying that you knew it. Um, I think it's Game Maker, but I'm not entirely sure. She wouldn't give me a whole lot of information about it. My teacher. I could probably look it up quick. Um, Game It uh, Curriculum. Oh, it's it's created by STEM, which is that uh, STEM Fuse, a resolution in STEM. Okay, what is included? The, each unit comes with a teacher's guide and all materials you need to teach the course. PowerPoints, worksheets, quizzes, yuck. Answer keys, plus step-by-step instructions to build 12 games. We include the solutions and all the resources needed to build our games. Our worksheets and quizzes are available as both PDF, blah, 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 blah. It, it is maker for sure. Yeah, it's, it's got to be. Um, they can see it in unit 3. They have, like, game maker files. Ah, here it is. Um, game maker light. This program must be downloaded on each student's computer. This is a free program. To download, go to... Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, they're not even providing the pro the pro version of Game Maker. If it's Lite, then that's like Game Maker 7, right? Game Maker 8.1. Lite. Oh, my bad. No, there was Lite and... Okay. Anyways, yeah, no, that's... I would expect they would at least give you... Give, like, the school a discount on the pro version. Well, my school has bought the pro version for, I think it was 7, though. I don't know if they uh, got new versions since then. But they have like, Game Maker 7 Pro or something on a lot of the computers because I think they actually talked to you games and got a uh, discount. But, um, yeah, education discounts are really common. So Education discounts are common, but uh, budgets are really, really, really tough. Yeah. Right now, especially. <laughs> and it's really, it's really tough to get a bunch of stuff installed in a school. Yeah. As we know from the experience that we're going through right now, the, the IT people are overwhelmed and they don't respond. And it's like, hey, you know, here's a bug. We, we pushed a new version and then you just don't hear back for a week. And it's like, oh, jeez. Well, what I did at my school is um, they they have the crappy Internet Explorer on all their computers. So what I did was I went to Firefox, um, and I downloaded it onto, you know, like, my portion of their hard drive, and basically I can run that straight from my hard drive on any computer in the entire school. And then I also have uh, FileZilla and Notepad++ so I can work on websites during school, because I'm making a site for a robotics team, so... All that stuff. So, um, some schools could do that with the Game Maker, you know, because... I have Game Maker Pro on a flash drive around here somewhere that I can literally just plug into any computer and just like that I have Pro. You're presupposing a level of sophistication that is well above what is it? <laughs> yeah. That's right back to public education sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a money problem, but it, it, more than anything, it's a cultural problem. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, we pay teachers like crap, and we don't treat teaching as a serious profession. I mean, teachers teach it as, as take it as a serious profession, right? Like they most of them. <laughs> yeah, most most of them. I mean, they do the best that they can, but geez, 
it's not like it is in other countries. There, there are countries where teachers are paid at the level of like you know a serious uh, occupation, like a doctor or something. And also, it starts out even worse. And like it, even when they've been teaching for like twenty years or something, it's still not really that great. But even like it's even worse than that when they start because it gets better and better the longer they just continue teaching. So it's. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of the whole thing of we're depending on the teachers to have an educated uh, populace, yet we still are trying to complain about the fact that we're paying for educating everyone. And the education's not even good. And it's kind of like if you don't pay them very much, they're not going to be as concerned about doing a really good job. And well, the, yeah, and it's also not a meritocracy, really. Like the way that that um, the way that teachers are employed in public education, they have this sort of tenure system where once you're in, you're in, and it's really hard to get fired, and so, I mean, in general, that yeah. just kind of produces people who don't care, you know, have no incentive to care, and the young people coming up who are really hungry, they, you know, I don't know, they, they do, like, Teach for America or something like that, and then they go into, like, at-risk schools, and they try really hard to do something really meaningful for a few years and they get really burned out. Yeah. And uh, another thing is, you know, people learn at different rates. I remember last year and I took an advanced physics course and we were going at the slowest pace of, or pace of any course I've ever taken. We were still setting Newton's three laws at the end of the first semester. It's like, this, this is common sense. I mean, you read the law, you understand it, it, you should cover all three of them in a week. Maybe two if the class doesn't understand, at, rather than a whole I mean, semester. Right. So everybody pretty much learns at different rates, and that's... with well, People learn at different rates, and they learn in different ways. So mm-hmm. another, another thing that, that um, this sort of, like, bringing games into schools initiative wants to do is allow people to learn at their own rate. So you basically give them a system where they can, you know, pick what they're going to do next or have some agency in the way that they digest content so that people can learn at different rates without, you know, the teacher having to hold everyone back if one person's not getting it or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it sounds like you're, you're putting a lot more, like, control in the hands of the student than just con- conventional uh, education at the moment and everything, public at least. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's the idea, right? That's one of the, the core premises of this. It's um, transformational play is the name of the academic theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because with math, you know, I just... Last year, I would sleep during class, read the chapter at night, do the homework. It was really simple, you know. I didn't have to pay attention during class because it came to me so naturally, whereas in history... I'd have to read the chapter like five times to get a B on the test. So, not only do some kids learn at different paces, but different subjects. So, with your whole system of having them choose what they want to do next, you know, they'd be able to choose, or strategize, and they'd also probably learn some time management skills as well. So, I really hope that that takes off, because that sounds... I don't even know what word to use. It just sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's the idea, right? Like, I, I don't think anyone are, would argue that public education as it is right now is awesome and is totally working and the U.S. is totally not, like, falling behind in science and, you know, like, that's, that's, no, it's working fine. It's great. We should keep going with what we're doing. I mean, maybe, yeah. 
don't want to get into politics, but there might be some people who say that. <laughs> uh, we're doing enough politics stuff in school right now. I'm I'm good for a while. <laughs> yeah. We're doing enough politics stuff in life right now, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so do you want to talk about scale next? Yeah, sure. Alright, so um, I've read up and watched some videos about scale, and I've heard a lot of different things, like you're not quite sure how some features are going to work. So are you going to be using, like, you can scale any object as much as you want, or are you going to use that juice method that you were talking about? Well, so any, you can scale any object mm -hmm. up or down as much as you want within the constraints of the amount of juice that's in the level, right? So okay. you have to draw it out of one object to put it into another object. So it, at least from a game designer's perspective, there, that's one way that I can control the maximum size of objects without actually having to just like put a cap on it. Mm -hmm. All right, that makes sense. <clears throat> All right, and then I I don't really know. Like, how how far along is the game right now? Uh, I would say it's not very far along. I think I have a a prototype that is promising, um, but needs a lot of work. It needs a lot of like infrastructure, basically. I need mm -hmm. to build a sort of gameplay garden where you can scale things up and down and push other things around with things that are being scaled and uh, stuff doesn't explode, basically. And I, I need to be able to you know do a whole bunch of objects at the same time because I have a bunch of different ideas involved um, with adding sort of modifiers on top of the existing mechanics so you can scale one object up and all the other objects of the world scale down and stuff like that. And so I'm, I'm going to run into some performance problems with that probably because of um, the fact that physics engines are not designed around the idea of dynamically scaling things. They always assume <laughs> that the same thing is going to be the same size and then they sort of handle things from there. Um, and I'm building the game in Unity so I don't have like super low-level control of the physics. So it's possible that in order to actually make this game and actually be able to do what I want, like go into crazy, like in, you know, recursion worlds and stuff like that. that we'll need to do some kind of custom physics solution that is designed to work with scaling objects dynamically, or is designed around that. This is what a nightmare. It's a little bit of a nightmare. I seem to have a regrettable instinct for concepts that people will get really excited around, but which have really, really deep technological challenges. For example, shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, I just asked in the IRC, yeah, if anybody wants to go to our IRC, um, the shortest link that I can give over the radio is bit, you know, bit.ly slash indie, I-N-D-I-E in lowercase, and then IRC in capital letters, or you can go to the afternet.org uh, IRC network and go to the indie function channel, which is just hashtag... I-N-D-I-E-F-U-N-C-T-I-O-N, Indie Function. And you can chat with us and ask Steve questions. So if anybody has any questions, just go ahead and ask. And uh, you could also probably tweet us, which is just at Indie Function. Um, I'll open up our Twitter quick. So just wanted to let everyone know that's listening in that you can interact with us and ask Steve stuff if you're wondering about something. Um... So, where exactly did you get the whole idea of scale? 
I was sitting in a lecture at MIGS 2007, 2008, something like that. I was sitting in a lecture with the, the creator of Mario, Mario Galaxy, like the game director of Mario Galaxy, and he was just talking about the problems that they were trying to solve by making everything planets that you run around as opposed to the environment you run around in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was going on about how that solves so many different camera problems, and he was talking about specific problems of nausea and stuff like that. And I, I don't know, I was just sort of like daydreaming about different interesting ideas for mechanics. I had an idea for a mirroring mechanic that a few other people have kind of picked up and done stuff with. Um, my friend Steve On is making a game called, what's it called? Moments of Reflection. So you, it's like a 2D platformer where you can mirror the world across and then sort of solve things that way. So I had an idea for making sort of like a mirror 2D platformer game where you click and drag to like mirror the world across and do different things with that. And then I had this idea for scaling things up and down. I gotcha. I just just thought it would be, you know, I I was thinking about the various interesting like dimensions that you can go in if you're trying to find a good experimental mechanic. And, you know, time obviously has been well explored and I was thinking about sort of, oh, you know, time and space and, oh, scale, I guess, you know, that would be an interesting one. Hmm. It's still, it's still basically spatial puzzles, but it's, it's interesting to be able to manipulate the scale of things. And I think there's a lot of fertile metaphorical ground too, like if, you know, you can make something much larger, it sort of makes it more terrifying potentially, you know, or if something is terrifying, you make it smaller and now it's cute and funny. Um. And it's like that whole thing I talked about with the chair, right? It's like uh, a normal-sized chair is a boring object, and that's kind of the way that we interact with scale. Uh, but if you see a little tiny, like, dollhouse chair, that's like a, an interesting and fascinating object. And if you see a 20-foot-tall chair, that's an art. Huh. So how exactly are you going about making uh, puzzles for it? Are you trying to just use the scaling factor, or are you going to try doing some out-of-the-box stuff, like uh, maybe having it? So, like, there's a requirement that you can only have this object so large, or, like, you can't have it cross any lines on the map, or... What what are you doing for puzzles? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't really know yet. I mean, I, I'm basically just sort of working in a gameplay garden and trying to find stuff that's interesting without getting too locked in. And I also... My, my thinking about making a game of this type has changed significantly since when I started making it. And my thinking now is basically that to have a preconception about what the game is going to be, for example, that you're going to have a series of puzzles that have one solution or two solutions, and you need to sort of linearly traverse these puzzles in, the, in a portal kind of way or a braid kind of way. I mean, braid is sort of pseudo-linear, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not necessarily a good approach, right? I think that you need to, like, make the game and get it working and get it stable and then think, okay what does the game actually want to be? Like, what's interesting about this? And, and if you're going to make an experimental mechanic, you know, you shouldn't start with an idea about how it's going to play. It should be an experiment. So that's kind of where I am now. And so basically, I think the approach is to make a, like I said, a gameplay garden with a lot of different elements in it. So, you know, maybe I'll make balloon objects that pop if they get too big. Or, you know, like, I can think of a lot of different ideas for sort of, game item, then I can think of a lot of different ideas for uh, sort of meta structures that can be built on top of things. 
So like I was, you know, you scale one object up and all the other objects in the world scale up at the same time or Ooh. down at the same time. So the scale of everything is maintained. What is that like? I, I have a, I had a level in that demo where you, you can just scale everything, like everything in the world scales from the point at which the scale beam hits. And that's interesting because it sort of warps space as well as time. Like you can traverse a huge amount of Was that land. like a canyon or something? Yeah, like the canyon thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so like that that's definitely something that I need to explore more and like take that and start interblending that with other uh, puzzle elements that I've already built and other ideas and stuff. But uh, that's one in particular has a lot of technical problems that need to get solved first because it's basically just like a lot of box colliders underneath. Um, and it, it's already like running into a lot of performance issues. And what I really want is for that whole thing to collide perfectly with the visible geometry, uh, and I haven't figured out a way to do yet. And I want to do that, and then I want to do, you know, like a city full of skyscrapers that you can scale out of. Oh, that would be cool. Performance. <laughs> yes, you you scale a you scale a, a sky, you know, a whole city all the way down so that you can step on top of a building and scale all the way up, and then you like up in the window, and I don't know, there's like. Uh, time switch you have to hit that's like at the top of the tallest building and then oh. it's been something that's like a sewer grade that's way outside of the city you know things like that right like in, you know there's a lot of interesting potential there that just needs exploring um and i think you know when you make it a game like that you kind of have to be open to the possibility that a lot of stuff's not going to work or maybe not enough stuff works overall for the game to be worth making but the way I feel about it right now, I feel like there's enough to make it to hang a, a whole game on, even in in the sort of part of what I have. But I want to drive a little bit deeper into what I have and find some mm -hmm. stuff that's a little bit more mind bending. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Now I'm going back to your whole balloon thing. Maybe instead of having it so large that it pops, you could have it so if you make it too small, the helium pops it. But <laughs> if if you make it too big, it starts like going down because there's not enough helium in there to keep it afloat so that could have a moving platform i don't know i just thought of that, that thought about that just random idea throwing it out yeah. and then uh oh ian said that he'd take the question okay, from metal well, demon in the irc someone was asking uh is there going to be a backstory is it just going to be a puzzle game uh yes there will be some sort of backstory um I don't want to make a super sparse narrative-less game that has no grounding or purpose for what you're doing. I also don't want to make really hand-holdy, spoon-fed, traditional linear game narrative. So it'll probably end, end up landing somewhere in between where everything is geared towards creating a context in the world as opposed to giving you a literal series of events that take place. And I have a short story that my friend Dale Grant wrote. He, um, if you've never read Lesson Is Learned, but the damage is irreversible. It's my favorite webcomic of all time. It was, you know, David Hellman, the guy who did the art for Braid. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was sort of his uh, big breakthrough project. Oh, um, cool. I'll have to check that out. So he and Dale are old friends, and they made that together. And that's I love that. It's like my favorite webcomic of all Lesson time. LessonIsLearned.com. And they started making new ones, <laughs> and I'm really excited about it. But anyway, uh, yeah, Dale's a really amazing writer, so I'm I'm going to do some kind of narrative thing, and I'm not quite sure what it is yet, but I definitely will 
will involve scaling things and it will involve the metaphorical weight of scaling something up or down that and, and how that changes what it means and what it is and so on. Huh. And I don't want to reveal I don't want to reveal much about it just yet, but yeah, there definitely will be a, a narrative that binds it together. That's that's really cool. Okay. Um mm-hmm. yeah, no that's pretty awesome. Uh, <laughs> Zach is great or Zach the Great, the IRC, uh, asked, as an aspiring student to be game developer, what advice can you give to anyone wanting to be an independent game developer? Um, make games. <laughs> so, so, sort of the start and end of it, right? Make make games and release games. I this game part is really hard, and there's no way for me to describe in words how hard it is. You have to experience it for yourself. But make games and release games, and don't release games for people to tell you that they're good, because no matter how good your games are, people are always going to tell you they're shit. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the opposite is also true, so don't put too much weight in that. Just make games and release games. As long as you're making something and you're releasing stuff, you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And if, if you keep honing your craft and really care about how good what you're making is and how to make it better the next time you make something, then one day you'll look around and everyone will be paying you money for your games and you'll do really well and you know, it'd be really awesome, but it's way more about process than it is about result. It's mm-hmm. it's way more about loving to sit down, code, make art, put things together, get things done, put them out. Yep, finishing. Um, a lot of people that we've interviewed have said the finishing is a very crucial part. Just just like Steve said with releasing. Um, I mean, it's part of the process. If you never finish a game, you know, it's not going to be part of the process that you know. So. Like, the more often you finish a game, the more motivated you are to finish. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, there's this whole concept of momentum. It's like a like a ramjet almost. You know, you get it up to a certain speed, and then it becomes self-perpetuating. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. It's, it's painful, and it's especially painful when you take something that's very personal that you care about and put it out into the world. But that's what you got to do if you want to... Be a developer and make money and and make this be a uh, a legitimate occupation. Yep. Anybody else who has any questions, go ahead and ask them. Uh, we're probably going to be on for a little while more. We won't be too long though, because I'm guessing you have some stuff to do later today. I gotta eat some lunch, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also, yeah, I don't know, I got, got various games to work on. I don't know, I, I think that um, becoming Mr. Game Jam is probably the best thing that you can do as a, a student wanting to become a game developer. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of game jams, there's a really cool one happening uh, tonight in some countries called the Zero Hour Game Jam. All right. Yeah. And at first I was like, what, what do you mean by zero hour? Well, with the whole daylight savings thing, yeah, you're not going to be able to do this, Steve, because I know Arizona doesn't. <laughs> There's do. no daylight savings in Arizona. <laughs> well, basically, uh, with daylight savings, it's two a.m. and then an hour later, it's two a.m. again. So technically, you made a game from two a.m. to two a.m., which is zero hours. So it's it it's a little genius joke that uh, some guys. Uh, I think in the Ludum Dari community, 
came up with, and um, yeah, I love it. <clears throat> so do you know why Arizona and Hawaii don't have daylight savings time? <laughs> no, why? We're, we're Arizona. We don't do anything. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Answer. <laughs> Why not, Ian? Imagine get like the sound of gunfire and uh, taking shots of whiskey after that, and then you have the full picture. <laughs> <laughs> like the clink of the whiskey shot glasses. Uh, perfect. <laughs> but yeah, time zones. <clears throat> the with Arizona and Hawaii, that always messes me up. Because, like, over the last year and a half that I've been doing any function, I've worked with a lot of different time zones, and I can actually, like, figure out what time it is in most countries around the world, and, like, states and stuff, just by, hey, where are you? And then I do all the math in my head, just because I've talked to so many people. But then Arizona comes around, and they're like, we're not going to change our hours, so you got to research, Google search, what time it is, and then memorize that. I'm like, ah, god damn. We live in a truly global society now. Mm-hmm. Truly, it's yeah. As as Aaron's fond of remarking on about like Gangnam Style, right? It's <laughs> it's like it's like how you know they try to explain Gangnam Style in the context of like, the Beatles coming over from England. Like, oh, the Beatles—they came from England to America. Oh, that's amazing. Everyone in the world has heard Gangnam Style, like. I, pull, I was pulling into my street yesterday, and there were a bunch of kids of various ethnicity, various ages, sitting around, and they're, like, looking at a cell phone, and this girl's, like, doing the Gangnam Style dance, just, like, as we drive by on the street. It's just, like, oh, my God. We live, we, we're in the world of tomorrow. That's, like, you know, yeah. somebody can make a video in Korea, and by the next day, everyone in the world has seen it, or everyone in the world that uses the internet has seen it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that song bugs the crap out of me. It... Oh. <laughs> okay, we have another question in the IRC. Uh, another one from Metal Demon underscore. As a start... <laughs> As a start-up indie game developer, I'd like to ask if working in a team is better for getting experience in making games. Uh, well, that sort of wraps back to the question of education and how you like to learn about stuff and motivation and, you know, do you find it much easier to maintain motivation with people or not? I mean, again, it all comes back to making stuff and releasing stuff. So whatever, you know, try both ways, I'd say, and whatever seems to work the best for you, if your metric is making stuff and releasing stuff, then go with that. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I worked at NeverSoft, and that was that was a very interesting experience, and it taught me a lot of things about how to make games, and it taught me a lot of things about how I never wanted to make games again. You know, a lot of things about how to, you know, how not to run your company, and but you know, it was it was a good experience. It was interesting, and I I um I have to say that it was very you know net positive altogether. So. Yeah, I don't know. It really depends. It really depends on what kind of person you are, how you like to learn, how you like to work. As long as you're creating stuff and releasing it, that's like you're, you're learning thing. Even if it doesn't make you... How do I say this? 
even if it isn't better for learning how to make games, like, you'll still learn how to work in a team, at least. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that that's a, that's a certain skill set, being, being a part of a team, and I think it's really, really important. But I think more than anything, what you should seek out is people that you harmonize with really well, because I, I, mean, I think there's sort of the generic skill of not being a prick and being able to work with people productively, uh, and everyone needs to work on that to some degree. But I also think that there are just some people out there that you will work with really, really well. And there's some people that you won't work with so well. And it actually doesn't have that much to do with how talented they are, how good they are, how motivated they are, or anything like that. It's just how well you sort of overlap and synergize. And do you have a positive cycle of energy where you like do something and then you show it to them and they're like, awesome. And then they show you something they did and you're like, oh, that's tight. And it like motivates you to keep working. Like that's really what you want if you're going to work in a team. If you can do that by yourself, like uh, the famous Kyle Pulver apparently just has no problem cranking out games on his own, just like just kills it. Like he goes to game jams and makes these amazingly polished finished things. Just like, dude, awesome, amazing. Yeah, you can do that. You should. You can do that. You know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to work with people. I, I lose motivation quickly on my own. It's just something I know about myself that, that I work much better when I have people that I'm interacting with and collaborating with, and, and I like to sort of keep that momentum going that way. Hey, Steve, want to work on a game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe so. A little game jam somewhere. Yeah. I, I have like four open projects right now that I want to close the loop on. Um, Take a break. <laughs> Started. <laughs> so, uh, Metal Demon got rid of the underscore now. <laughs> yeah, he got a bit self-conscious after you mentioned it on the show. Well, you laughed at it, Brett. I mean, jeez. Foster. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's impersonating Metal Demon. Yep. You guys need to fix your IRC. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, what what else do we want to talk about? So, we talked a little bit about scale, talked a little bit about motivation, education. Um, What's there something earlier that we said we were going to come back? Oh to? yeah, your your workout stuff, right? Oh yeah, yeah, fitness. Okay, so fitness is really really important, um, and it's really important for your mind, and it's something that not very many people think about. <laughs> But it's, but your mind will function a lot better if your body is is maintained and you're doing a, a good job of staying in shape and stuff. So um, you know, I'm the type of person who, when I when I see something that's not working for me, so for example, I had like put on a bunch of weight it never soft and you know it was like really haggard and I was just like feeling really shitty all the time and it was really affect my ability to do work and have that nice clear headed feeling you need when you're trying to design something or program something complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, so I started doing all kinds of different things to try and exercise and started just like doing what you're quote unquote supposed to do, going to the gym, like 24 hour fitness or whatever. And I found that to be a very isolating experience. You know, you go there and nobody is talking and nobody, you know, you're just annoyed that people are on your machines and people are annoyed that you're there and, and you know, you work, you do your workout and it's, it's like very hard to rev up the self-motivation to do that. Um, and so, I don't know, I mean, I, I did, like, off-road mountain unicycling and stuff like that, and me and my buddies would do that, and that was fun for a while. And um, and then we stumbled 
as many people do, I think, onto CrossFit. Uh, and it's, it's sort of a, amusingly a very nerdy crowd at CrossFit because it's people who are optimizing them, people who are trying to get really, really fit but not spend hours and hours in the gym. So CrossFit is basically you go to a, a gym and there's like pull-up bars and there's like tractor tires and there's like weight sleds and then there's like sledgehammers and there's uh, weights and bars and, and uh, you know, boxes for doing box jumps and jumps, jump ropes for doing jump rope and so on. And so you show up and it's like, okay, what's the workout for today? Oh, okay, I'm taking a tractor tire, 300-pound tractor tire, and I'm going to flip it. And then I'm going to jump into it and jump out of it, and then I'm going to flip it the other way. And I do that as many times as I can in 15 minutes, and then like hit it 100 times with a big sledgehammer or something. <laughs> or yesterday the workout was we did um, 100 pull-ups, 100 push-ups, 100 sit-ups, 100 squats for time. Jeez. Um, right, and it sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, and it's, you know, you get pretty sore and torn up or whatever, but... It takes about an hour, and then you're just like good, and you feel amazing for the rest of the day. Um, but what's what I really like about it is it kind of feels like a tribe. It's it's the same people that show up to the same sessions that you go to every time, and it's run by an instructor. And so it's really about improving your form and technique on some of these really complex Olympic weightlifting movements, or being able to do double unders or triple unders if you jump rope jump roping so it feels very game like there's a bunch of scores right like there's the maximum number of double unders i've done in a row just like 130 or something and i'm trying to get to 150 and i'm doing like muscle ups and um it's just it feels really fun because you're you're all doing this workout together and you're sort of competing but really you're all just like supporting each other and like oh yeah come on man you can do it and uh, you see the same people and you become friends with them and most of the time the people are like really sp- aren't interesting people who do interesting things and they've arrived at this after trying a bunch of other things the sort of the way that I did. This uh, sounds so much like a game jam right now. It does. It does. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's totally like, every, you know, we go four times a week and it's like everybody gets together and everybody's just worried about their own fitness and trying to get their own fitness up and, you know, be better at every one of these various different types of skills. And it's just like a way better way to work out and I don't know. So that's kind of my rant about everyone should really pay attention to fitness. Pay attention to your body. Make sure your body is taken care of so that your mind can function well and you know doesn't start to break down and you don't have all kinds of health problems that prevent you from doing what you love. And I don't know. I also kind of think that <clears throat> there's way too many uh, nerdy white game developers who sit in a room and have the same influences making games. Um, and I, I think everyone needs to get out and like go skydiving and you know, climb down into the Grand Canyon and, you know, <laughs> go outside and do stuff, do things that are not games and take that experience and bring it back and then make games about that. Hmm. That's really interesting. I should go outside. Like, well, if you want to make interesting games, lead an interesting life, basically. Oh, that's actually really deep sounding. <laughs> if you want to make interesting games, lead an interesting life. We're, we're putting that up on the site. Just, uh... <laughs> <laughs> on Twitter, right? I mean... Okay, uh, Zach the Great asks, "Do you think studying other games is a good way to figure out what works in games?" Oh yeah, sure, of course. Um, I I would point out that there's a really big difference between studying games and playing games, and it can really ruin games for you. So be careful. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, so I was designing Shadow Physics, and I'm designing Scale, and so I sat down with my absolute favorite 
uh, games in what I perceived to be that type of game, which was made in Portal. And I actually sat down with um, both of those games, and I played through, and I just recorded all the information that I could think of. So in with Braid, I actually drew out each puzzle in my notebook. Like I took the time to draw out the relationships between the objects in the level, and I put little numbers down each step of the puzzle and wrote out the steps to beat each puzzle. And um, the exercise of doing that gives you a much deeper appreciation of what's going on, so much deeper than just actually playing the game. And, and it's, it's even deeper than the appreciation you get being a game developer playing a game and saying, oh, I see they did this really cool thing here. It's, it's very much like, like pulling the pieces apart more and more and more to try and get to the essence of why this works and what, the way that, it, that it's functioning. And I go so far as to write down like, okay, this element, uh, this puzzle element was, was introduced here, and this is introduced here, and this puzzle is comprised of these three elements, and this puzzle is comprised of these elements, and so on and so on. I sort of do the same thing for Portal, and I, I think there's a lot of really important lessons to be learned there about how to teach people a, a novel mechanic while at the same time giving them justification for bothering to learn it. I feel like that's a trap that a lot of these kinds of games fall into where it's like, hey, we have this novel mechanic, now play 20 really boring levels where we make you use it in a stupid way. <laughs> it's like, oh, that shit out. Tell, say, here's this really cool mechanic, you gotta do this to learn it, but immediately give me something awesome to do that shows me why it was worth learning. So, you know, Braid is amazing at that, and Portal's really good at that too, and um, just the way that the way that they chose to lay out the mechanics and introduce them over time, like I think, and I think it's really interesting to compare. I thought that like insanely granular level where you're actually like sketching out in a notebook the physical relationships of each puzzle element and portal, and like thinking about what's in view when you walk into the room and like, what where your where your view is led. Like portal's really good at that. Um, it's really good at you walk into a room, the space is really tight and constrained all the puzzle elements are laid out in front of you and the solution seems obvious so you just kind of seamlessly transition into trying to do stuff and then all of a sudden you you engage with the problem and you're like oh wow this is way harder than i thought it was it's not just pick this box up and move it over to here it's like do this and that and all these different steps um but you, you sort of arrive at this this kind of insight about the way that things are laid out uh very carefully and how they lead your eye around from one element to another and then that's that's really as a designer what you should study when you look at games like that and that's that's all i can really speak to because i haven't done a really deep dive on on many other games uh in that way because i haven't been like making a bunch of other types of games but that i think is really really worth doing and it, it's it's work and it takes time and it, but it, but the insight that you get from it is really interesting i also get a lot of um, inspiration and motivation from doing stuff like that I also think it's, it's really interesting to compare like Portal and Portal 2 because Portal 2 it doesn't do a very good job of that. I think they constructed a bunch of huge open spaces where the puzzle elements are really spread out and they're not very tight and so it starts to feel really plotting like, oh, you know, obviously I have to do something with that and obviously I have to do something with that, but oh, it's going to be really tedious to get there kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to find an article that... Uh, you made me think of, I read it the other day, I have this app called Zite, it's uh, really cool, Z-I-T-E, and it basically takes a bunch of um, news articles from like a hundred thousand million different sources, and you choose what 
um, categories you want. There's world news, politics, art and cultures, business and investing, sports, film and TV, music, news and commentary, um, technology, gaming, gadgets, science news, psychology, food, um, Apple news, well, um, philosophy, programming, web design, graphic design, architecture, and it keeps going on and on and on. I could, there's probably like 50 more. Um, but those are some of the better ones right there. And, um, they had this article in, it was either gaming or, um, programming. I'm trying to find it right now, but it basically was talking about why, um, Yoshi's Island should be taught in game development schools. And it kind of went on with what you're talking about, um, Yoshi's Island game dev schools. Um, I'm trying to find it, but they basically dissected it and really talked about, um, well, it should be, oh, here it is. Um, and it, it talks about everything in it. Um, like the tongue mechanic, uh, you, there's like a thousand different things that you can use it for. You can use it for picking up coins. You can use it for saving Mario because when you get hurt, Mario falls off your back and starts floating away instead of you dying. So then you can use your tongue to capture him again. You can also eat enemies and then poop him out. And, uh, um, I'll post it in the IRC if anybody wants to read it. It's really interesting read. Um, I don't know. You just made me think about it. And they talk about every mechanic in it and uh, how they approached it not by using the restraints of the technology, but try try to push it. And um, I don't know, it probably took me like half an hour to read, but it was just fantastic. Sweet, yeah, I'll check it out. There's, um, I just like to fire... David Rosen did a series of design tours, mm-hmm. which are really, really interesting and all on the same kind of lines where he just really dissects a given game. So that's the most famous one, the World of Food design tour, but there's a whole bunch of other ones. Oh, cool. If you want to dissect games at that level, or if you want to read other people, we know. That's a good example. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I've definitely been interested in trying to dissect games now more trying to figure out why they work, and we actually have a a section in our magazine coming up in the next release, it's called Developer's Critique, and the first person that's doing it is Connor Ullman, and we're basically going to take um, Semi to really well-known developers and have them review a game that either did really well or should have done really well but didn't, and point out what they did that made it succeed and what they could have done to uh, make it better, or if they didn't succeed, what or why they didn't. And uh, it kind of goes along with this. And uh, I don't remember who gave us the idea for it, but if you're listening in, thanks thanks for the idea. I'm hoping that it'll be an interesting section. So, yeah. Good deal. Well, I think I'm going to go off and get some sort of lunch. All right. Well, uh, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, guys. And then uh, I'll send you a link later when we upload it to the site in the archive, so if you want to tweet about that or whatever. Internet has. <laughs> yep. All around. All around. All right. <laughs> yep. All right. Catch you later, Steve. That ends it for our interview. Next, we will talk to our IRC and talk about what's happening with Indie Function.
All right. So uh, if anybody else in the IRC wants to comment about anything, uh, ask us any questions or whatever you'd like to talk about, uh, we'll stay around for another 10 minutes or so, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, well, we were talking about our magazine that is hopefully coming back next weekend on November 4th, almost said 3rd, um, on the 4th we have a few new writers, a new designer, um, tons of new articles, and uh, just all sorts of stuff. If anybody wants to join the Indie Function team and work on the magazine, or possibly the radio show with us, or any of our other projects, such as the uh, Game Maker Gazette, Indie News, um, our, our books, uh, the forums, anything... Uh, let's just go to IndieFunction.com, and we have a hiring center there. Uh, it's right up in the top nav bar, and basically just fill it out with your information, such as your name, uh, your Skype account, because we do all of our work over Skype, so if you don't have one, you'll need to create one, uh, either before you register or uh, just state in the thing that you don't have one yet, uh, your email what your skills are, what you'd like to do, and why you want to join Indie Function. Just kind of give me a motiv an idea of what your motivation is and um, uh, why you're interested in doing so and uh, what you want to get out of it. Um, thanks for everybody that uh, listened to our show. Uh, Zach the Great just said he's going to have to come here every Saturday. This radio show is a must for people just like me who want to become game developers. Um, the radio show is every other Saturday. Uh, we usually have it at noon U.S. Central Time, although today we did it at 1 p.m. because Steve uh, wasn't able to make it at noon, which wasn't a problem. Um, just make sure that you uh, go to our radio show page to make sure that you have the time right for that week because some weeks we might do it an hour late. And, uh, yeah. Zach, that's still heartwarming. Thank you. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Alright, so we're going to wrap it up and uh, do our credits. Thank you for listening in to broadcast number 33 of Indie Radio, the first broadcast of Season 3. This broadcast was broadcast live with 1,000 mics and was recorded using Adosti. All music was found on Newgrounds, coming from Copacetic, Ichigo, Chaplow, I Miss You, and Enigmatic Wolf. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope to have you be a part of the next broadcast, which will be November 10th. Have a good weekend.